this morning, uh, Art is going to tell his story, and uh, you can send questions at any point. We'll take a short break, bathroom break, and then he will have those questions on Google Doc and, um, and be able to field them. Uh, we're not going to have, like, pass the mic questions from the floor, just from past experience um, and so forth. And so, um, yeah, I think, you know, Art, we, our um, staff has gotten to know Art via Zoom, uh, which is that's how many of us have relationships over the last uh, couple of years. But he has been pouring into our staff, helping us um, really understand how to uh, best minister to the LGBTQ community. Uh, helping us understand a host of uh, questions and um, really how to be a church that is orthodox in their sexuality and yet uh, not just full of truth, but full of grace. And, um, and that's where we have been living as a staff, and we're excited to welcome you into that. Um, this afternoon at 2 o'clock, at 352 South Main, which is our church office. Um, for those that are SSA, uh, same-sex attracted, you're welcome to come to the office and meet with Art. There will be other SSA um, you know, members, visitors there. Um, I have no idea how many, but, um, but I hope that what we're trying to do with this is create a safe space for you to ask questions and also for you to see others in this congregation that you might develop community. Um, and I want you to know that, um, you know, our staff, myself, uh, we are very open to um, uh, being walking with you and pastoring uh, you. And uh, we have with others in the church and, um, but, we entrust that decision to you. So that's why we're creating this space this afternoon at 2 o'clock at 3.52. Tomorrow morning at, in Sunday school, Art will present the biblical uh, basis and what the scriptures teach about uh, LGBTQ, homosexuality, and uh, there will be opportunities to field questions there. Um, and I'm really looking forward to that. And then he will be preaching uh, from Psalm 119, as well as Romans 8, 2, I think, 22, somewhere in there. And um, I'm excited about that as well. Um, so before we get started, let me pray for Art and for our time together. Let's pray. Father, you are good, and all you do is good. Uh, Lord God, we thank you that uh, one day, someday, uh, this struggle will be over for all of us, all the struggles we face. Uh, will be over and there will be real redemption mm. in the new heaven and the new earth mm. and we long for that mm. reconciliation um, but god in the meantime we thank you for your son jesus we thank you for the gospel we thank you that um, there's hope for all of us in our brokenness and um, lord i pray that we would just continue to walk uh, deep in our brokenness that we might walk deep in your healing and, um, and follow your path for a life of flourishing this side of glory. Um, God, I pray for Art. Thank you for uh, him. Thank you for his story. Uh, give him freedom as he speaks. And Holy Spirit, God, his heart and mind. And God, our hearts and mind. Lord, may we receive um, this and, and think new thoughts after you. 
Um, Lord, bring healing even in this church body. And uh, we pray that we would be a church that is full of grace and truth. Uh, teach us, Lord. Uh, guide us. And do so for the glory of Christ and the good of your people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, y'all. Good to meet you. Um, like Richard said, my name is Art Pereira. I am a uh, Brazilian immigrant. I came to the States when I was four. Um, I work in full-time ministry. I was a youth pastor for 10 years. So if any of you work in or volunteer in youth ministry, um, God bless you. You're my heroes. Uh, you're also those kids' heroes, so we're thankful for you. Um, but thank you for taking the time to be here this morning. I care a lot about the conversation of faith and sexuality. Um, it's a conversation I've had to have since I was 11, and you'll hear a lot about my story today. Um, probably a lot more than you're used to hearing from someone you just met four seconds ago, um, unless you also befriend a lot of oversharers like I do. Um, but I'm going to share a little bit about my story with you. We'll take a break to um, collect some questions and let you use the restroom, and then I'll share some practical ways we can care for the LGBTQ community, um, and we'll also just answer some questions. Um, before we get into that, I want to start by naming a few things. Um, people get uncomfortable when we talk about sexuality in church. It's one of the reasons we don't do it a lot. Um, why does it matter if we talk about it? Um, first of all, because we need to learn together. Um, God's people need to walk through uncomfortable topics together. We need to seek the Holy Spirit together um, and let Scripture guide us. Um, and when we don't have conversations, where do we learn? Google. Um, and I've been there, done that, learning whatever it is about sexuality on Google, and it's just not a life-giving path. Um, so we need to have uncomfortable conversations together. And there may be reasons this conversation's uncomfortable for you. Um, as I've done this work for full-time for about a year, I'm learning that no one comes to this conversation without, uh, you need me to talk a little louder? Oh, I can talk a little louder. Um, as, as I've done this conversation for about a year, I'm learning that no one comes to this conversation without some baggage, um, without some past experiences. Uh, it's possible that you are LGBTQ or same-sex attracted, and just the fact that a church is going to teach about this makes you anxious. Because um, you've been in rooms where you were talked about as an abomination, or you've been in rooms where you were talked about as the worst sinner in the space, even while the church claimed that all sin is equal. I've been in those rooms too. Um, maybe it's your sibling or your friend. Um, one, of, one of my good friends, he's 62, he's a good man, um, and one of the ways he started supporting our ministry, but his main connection to the LGBTQ community is that his sister, her husband cheated on her for 25 years with another man. And so when he meets me, he has baggage. He doesn't trust LGBTQ people because they ruined his sister's marriage. He's had to be open-hearted. He's had to understand what it means to walk with people and differentiate from people's experiences. Um, so I just want to name, we're all carrying stories and maybe hurt and maybe anxiety in this morning. I'm sorry for that. Um, it is good and honoring of the Lord that we still have hard conversations. And so let's take a second together to put those down so that we can talk about the conversation in front of us. Um, and I'm going to ask you, one of the best ways we can do that is to take me at my word. And what I mean is, when I say my experience, or when I tell you what that means for me, um, I invite you to believe me. 
I invite you to work through some of the discomfort that might bring for you. I'm not saying you can't have discomfort. I'm uncomfortable. But I just invite you to recognize we're all uncomfortable together, and the Holy Spirit is really good at guiding us through. So that said, um, let me tell you a little bit about, about, about me. Excuse me. Uh, by the way, if y'all need me to slow it down, give me one of these or like any. Um, I'm, you know, my mom's an immigrant, and so usually when I speak someplace, she comes with me. Because if mom looks confused, it's because I'm talking too fast to translate. But if y'all look confused, we're talking about sexuality. That don't mean nothing. Um, so g give me one of these, you know, if I need to slow down. Because I get excited. And I, I grew up preaching in a Brazilian church. So we go for two hours, we get angry, and we talk fast. So, um, But let me tell you about, about myself. I'm an only child by blood. Um, you will hear me reference brothers or other siblings. But the Lord has been really faithful in giving me spiritual family. Um, but I was raised on my own by my two wonderful parents. They were non-practicing Catholics. Um, we would go to church maybe Easter and Christmas. So not even the Easter and Christmas non-practicing Catholics, but the maybe Easter and Christmas. If someone had done something wrong that year and we felt real guilty, then we were at church on Easter, you know? Um, I had zero faith growing up. Uh, in fact, I mostly thought that Christians were silly. I was the sort of kid who called God an invisible best friend for grown-ups. And as you can imagine, I was really fun to have in youth group when that started. Um, we started going to church when I was 11. And so all of a sudden, I was forced to be at a youth group every Friday night and church every Sunday night. Um, immigrant church, and so Brazilian service was on Sunday nights. And so at 6 p.m., we were at the two and a half hour service that was mostly in Portuguese with some translation. Uh, and it was my least favorite part of the week. Um, I, I didn't believe in this God that suddenly we decided as a family we were pursuing. I was not involved in that conversation or that decision. Uh, my parents just said, this is what we're doing. And so that's what we did. I still remember at age 13 leaving youth group, having actually thought about God's love for the first time. Um, they were doing one of those youth group lessons that for those of you who've grown up in the church, you're like, we get it. Jesus loves us. What is this, VBS? Like, we've heard this since we were six. Uh, but when you're not from the church, you're like, invisible sky man loves me? That's crazy. And so I remember driving home and going, what if this is real? What if this God that I don't even believe in believes in a love relationship with me? That's crazy. But at the same time that I was starting to open up my heart to this possibility of a creator that loved me, I was also coming to realize that I was gay. And what I mean by that is that at around the age of 11 or 12, I was realizing that I experienced no attraction to women um, and seemed to have attraction to men. I can't explain to you the severe confusion I was experiencing, but I'll, I'll try. Um, these are two really hard things to experience at the same time. See, the first thing is I knew that I had not chosen to be attracted to men. Um, some of the Christians around me had a tendency to talk about gay folks as if they like chose that for themselves. But as a Brazilian immigrant in a predominantly white town, there was no point where I was like, you know what would be really fun? More marginalization. My life is so boring, it is too easy, everyone understands me, I'm never confused. Let's wake up tomorrow and be gay. That never happened. In fact, I was in denial for years. 
I didn't even believe in prayer, but before I believed in prayer, I would say to God, I can't be gay, man. You got to make that not that way. See, um, I would pray to myself, please, God, fix me. This can't be real. And one of the reasons I was so dead set against being gay is because I knew that my parents and my church would never accept me. Uh, my dad was macho Brazilian man. We grew up on a farm in Brazil. Um, all the pictures of my dad under the age of 20, he's got a shotgun over his shoulder and a de dead capybara in his hands. And like, that was dad, you know? And here's his son who mostly likes artistic stuff or reading or writing and doesn't really do sports and has never shot a shotgun. And I'm like, oh man, he can't ever know. This can't be real. I really need my dad to love me, so I can't be gay. But also, I didn't know a lot about Christianity, but I knew it wasn't really kind to gay folks. Even then, the Lord was pursuing me and working on my heart. Um, as I became curious about faith, I became hungry for it. I, I wanted to know what it was that these Christians around me were experiencing. And if you come to the faith a little later in life, you maybe have had experiences like that, where you're like, how is that person like this? I was part of a predominantly immigrant church. Life was hard for people. Okay, life was hard, and they were weirdly joyful. And they would always claim that joy was because of Jesus. And I was like, what's that? I want that. I was desperate to have something in my life that seemed as valuable to them as their faith was. And I was desperate to belong to this community. But I was also really convinced that there was no room at the communion table for a gay kid like me. I mentioned we're a little multicultural church in Newark, New Jersey. And so we had every walk of life represented in that church, right? We had recovering alcoholics. We had the local drug, lead, uh, drug, like, drug, crime, crime, uh, drug crime leaders. We had the local gang leaders, right? We had every walk of life represented. Men who were on their fifth wife. Women with like 10 kids and they never had a husband, right? Everyone. And uh, like loved by the church, welcomed. Those were like my aunts and uncles growing up, right? Incredible people with incredible faith. Not a single gay person. See, the, the, the goodness of Jesus was for people who sinned in the right ways. And all those folks sinned in the right ways. Gay people didn't. Um, I'd hear really terrible comments at church or at home about gay people. And every time I felt really hurt. They didn't know they were talking about me. No one knew, but they were talking about me. It felt like there was something deeply wrong with me in a way there wasn't with anyone else. I had to be uniquely sinful if any of this faith stuff was true. So I became ashamed and frustrated and angry. When my parents found out, our family fell apart. My dad didn't talk to me for six months. My mom, who was a new believer, the best she could do was get me into conversion therapy, which we'll talk about conversion therapy later. Um, but basically, it was a counselor recommended by my pastor whose whole job it was to make me heterosexual. See, the grace of Jesus, it was for everyone else but me. The forgiveness, the restoration, the joy, the love. You could do anything in your life besides be gay, and that was extended to you. And this lasted until the summer after my sophomore year of high school, I was about to turn 16, and I ended up meeting Jesus at one of the lowest points in my life. Um, really great Kirk Cameron film because it was like basic youth retreat. You know that like youth retreat that like clearly someone bought an old camp and they didn't really fix it up? 
And so like you're doing the sermon and you're like, oh, this room's dirty. Like, are we okay? Um, that's where I got saved. <laughs> I'm sitting in the basement of this dirty old retreat center and the preacher told us to just individually talk to God. And I was like, oh, I'll talk to God. I'm gonna let God have it because I'm angry because I've been so rejected by this God who I started to believe made me and then found out everyone who loves him hates me. So I decided to let God have it. And uh, apparently sometimes when you yell at God, God yells back. And I can't really explain what happened in my heart that night, um, but if you've ever felt really clear, powerful conviction from the Holy Spirit, then you know exactly what happened to me. I'm sitting there kind of yelling at God quietly in a corner, telling him how it feels to be rejected by him, to be rejected by his people. And suddenly, something shifted in my heart. And suddenly God was like, well, what if you're wrong? And I felt convicted. I felt like there was a lot about my life, my sexual relationships, my dating relationships, a lot about my life that was wrong. A lot about what I was understanding myself to be wrong, that a lot of what I was calling good, God was calling bad. A lot of what I was calling bad, God was calling good. And it felt like God saw all the filth in my heart. Suddenly, one of my oldest friends in the world, he was on this retreat, we're still friends to this day. He comes over, he's like, I don't know what's going on, but God just told me to tell you that he loves you and he's never gonna leave you no matter what you do. And suddenly, all that sense of judgment and shame and like, I've been caught got replaced with open arms and a sense of love and this reality that God sees everything sinful in me. I can't hide. I can't pretend for him like I did with everyone else. Because that, that was my thing. I was good at hiding. I was good at making everyone think I was this incredible kid. God said, I see right through you. And I'm still crazy about you. I still want you. I still love you. It felt like the whole gospel had, laid out, been, had been laid out for me, and it felt like the first time the gospel had included a gay person. So I gave my life to Jesus, and I knew that I would always love him more than anything else in my life. Um, which, again, if, if we're a Kirk Cameron film, we want to say this is where everything becomes beautiful. There's four minutes left in the movie, and it's just to show you, like, how wonderful my life is and how much my parents and I love each other. And, like, I, I start preaching at the youth group, you know? Um, and some of those things were true, but suddenly I was really confused. See, I had this newfound set of convictions. I was entirely convinced, as I am now, that God as my creator, my maker, and my Lord had every right to draw boundaries on any area of my life, including my sexuality. God had a right to tell me what to do. He makes us. He gets to tell us what's good for us. And through study of scripture and honestly a lot of the Holy Spirit's own work and conviction in my life, I'd become convinced of what we call a traditional sexual ethic, that marriage is for one man and one woman and all sexual intimacy should take place in that marriage. Great, incredible new belief system, it's super biblical, in keeping with my church, awesome. But what do I do with that as a 16-year-old kid who's never been attracted to a woman and in fact is only attracted to men? I felt crazy. And I knew that God had open arms for me, but it still didn't feel like the church did. So I approached my pastor, who was a godsend, such a good man. Um, he was gracious and kind and kind of unsure. He was kind of like, I don't know what to do. I've never done this before. 
So we talked and we prayed and we looked for resources. And what began was a month-long journey with my pastor, who was really kind to me. And all we could find was what we call the ex-gay movement. I mentioned going to conversion therapy earlier, so let me give you some context for the ex-gay movement. Um, it becomes pretty influential in, in my story. There were a few organizations in the 90s and early 2000s, actually I think it started around the 70s uh, to early 2000s, that their main way to present hope to the LGBTQ community was in the form of orientation change. Okay, The belief was that homosexuality was the opposite of holiness. And so to become holy, you had to become heterosexual. The only way to love Jesus was to eliminate any shred of homosexual desire and live faithfully in a heterosexual marriage. And it seemed like a lifeline at the time, honestly, because here were people with my experience and who were insisting on loving God. All I had seen were Christians who couldn't even talk about gay people or gay people who had given up on the church. Here were people who were like, okay, we wouldn't use the word gay, but we experience what you experience, and here's how we're following Jesus. So I spent the next eight years praying for healing, from when I was 16 to when I was 24. Um, you may have heard the term praying the gay away. I told God that I would keep asking for healing until I got it. I was the guy who went to every altar call, at every retreat, conference, anything. I was the only teenager you knew who fasted every Wednesday from food and from my phone because God was going to heal me. God was going to work in my heart. Whatever it took, I kept asking God to change me and to change me and to change me. And sometimes when you get into those mindsets, it, it becomes this like weird bargaining system with the Lord. Okay, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to be really obedient, but then you have to give me this, okay? Here's the trade. And so in that time, God started calling me to ministry. I said, okay, I'm going to be going to ministry. You're calling me to youth ministry. I'm going to do it. Now, you got to turn me straight, though. That's the deal. Like, I'm giving up. I was going to be, y'all, I'm an immigrant kid. I'm a Latino immigrant kid. And if you're an immigrant kid, you know you got to be a doctor. Or your parents are like, what do we do? Why did we leave the old country? What are you doing? Uh, and so I was supposed to be a psychologist. My parents were happy. They were like, that's kind of a doctor. It's not, <laughs> it's not the doctor we want, but it's the doctor we'll take. Like, okay, yeah. Okay, as long as we can call you doctor, as long as we can say doctor prayer, like, okay, we don't have to send you back to Brazil. And so when God's like, hey, go be a youth pastor, I'm like, youth pastors make like $3 an hour. <laughs> and what, what did my father say to me when I said, I think God's telling me to be a youth pastor? My dad said, do you think I left Brazil for you to make less money than you would at McDonald's? And it, was, it, was, it was rough. But the deal was I obey God. God makes me straight. That was the bargain. So I went to youth ministry. And about four years into being a full-time youth pastor, I had a significant crisis of faith. My faith started falling apart. My mental health started falling apart. Because I was the guy who could pray anything for you and God would do it. I mean, my kids were seeing crazy spiritual growth. Like the goodness of God, it was a youth group of four kids that became a youth group of 60 kids in three years, right? The goodness of God in that place, the way these kids became spiritual leaders, I was watching God do miracles in the lives of my students and ignore everything I ever said to him about myself. How is that not a God who rejects me? My mental health got worse and worse, and I would sit in my church and sometimes go, huh, I wonder what happens next week if these kids find out their youth pastor took his own life. Finally, I had a mentor who loved me well enough to say to me, Art, you are waiting to be heterosexual to be loved by God. 
I told him, no, of course I know God loves me. I'm a youth pastor. That's like the only thing we say to kids is God loves you. It's like our number one line. I said, no, no, you might say it. You might know it, but it's not here. You're waiting to be heterosexual to be loved by God. That's when you'll know he loves you. That's not working. And he was right because God hadn't healed me. He hadn't answered this prayer. I'd prayed over and over and over again. And the way the ex-gay community kind of said it, like that was how you'd be part of God's movement. If you don't see that happen, you're not really a part of the kingdom. How can you be holy if you're not heterosexual and married to a woman? So little by little, I started inviting my community into the conversation. Um, up until then, I was suffering in silence besides one or two people. So I started in inviting my spiritual brothers, these guys who've walked a lot of life with me. One of them is that guy that was at the retreat center when I was 16. We would talk and we would pray and we would wrestle. We didn't have words for it, but we would just say like, okay, I'm not normal. <laughs> and as my prayer life became more honest, I started asking God, why haven't you done this? Instead of just saying, do this, do this, do this, I started asking, why haven't you? Is there something I'm not seeing? Is there something you're doing that I'm ignoring? Why am I still gay? As I wrestled, I kept coming back to the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians, that three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. See, Paul prayed over and over, and rather than receive healing the way we would kind of want him to, he was given an experience, an opportunity to see the Lord's goodness in his own brokenness, to experience God's strength in his own weakness. And I started thinking, man, maybe there's a way to actually live a holy and healthy life without God changing my circumstances. Maybe God is just inviting me to obey him right now, not to wait to magically be part of the kingdom right now, one day, excuse me, but to just right now be the kingdom of God and walk the kingdom life with God. In fact, the more I looked at scripture with fresh eyes, the more I realized we very rarely see Jesus just zap anyone's sinful temptations or anyone's experience and fix it. We frequently see Jesus love people exactly as they are, give them a vision for their role in his kingdom and give them a cross to carry. It's worth noting here that Exodus, which was the largest ex-gay ministry in the United States, shut its doors in 2013 because its president made a public statement that of every individual he had met, thousands of people looking for healing in the way we often talk about, 99% had not found orientation change possible. 99%. Imagine going to the doctor, there's something wrong with you. And the doctor says, oh, take this. And you're like, well, will it work? And he's like, well, not for 99% of people, but you might be that 1%. You don't know. Have some faith. 99% of people who spent years and years insisting on orientation change. To be honest, the stories are kind of tragic of a lot of those people who were forced into heterosexual marriages. A lot of my siblings in the faith who were in their 40s and 50s, a lot of those marriages have dissolved in a lot of pain, a lot of betrayal, a lot of heartache. And I'm not saying that God can't do it. God can do anything. He seems to choose not to do it in most cases. It's left to us to ask him why and ask him and say, what is he doing? So I realized for years that I'd been assuming a lot about God and I asked him to forgive me. 
For years, I was demanding a sort of healing he hadn't promised me. I was bargaining with him instead of obeying him joyfully. And frankly, I've come to realize that everyone I know has a broken sexuality. I had believed the lie that I was somehow more messed up than everyone around me. But actually, as I looked at scripture, I realized I'd never met anyone with a sexuality that's not deeply impacted by the fall. So I started asking God for strength and grace. And I started asking him, how can I most glorify you? To be honest, I was afraid that I had believed a bunch of garbage from churches that hated gay people. So I took my Bible and my journal alone into the woods for a retreat. And before going, I asked my friends, would you still love me if I had a boyfriend? Because see, whatever I was going to do in this area of my life, I had to do it knowing I was loved at the end of the day. It couldn't be because there was a social gun to my head. I couldn't be strong-armed into some sort of celibacy or anything else. And they said, yeah, we would have tensions, but we'd figure this out. So I went to the woods with my Bible and I asked God, what are we doing? And honestly, the weekend away left my convictions the same. I just couldn't see a faithful way for myself to have a sexual relationship with a man. If you come to Sunday school tomorrow, I'll talk a little bit about my biblical theology of sexuality, what I see scripture says, why I believe that so strongly. But I just couldn't find a way to follow Jesus well, to obey what I think scripture teaches, and to have a sexual or romantic relationship with a man. So instead, I started asking Jesus, how can I live a beautiful life? Celibacy seemed terrifying, isolating, and like a death sentence, but celibacy seemed like kind of the option. I read some books by other people with similar life experience, um, men like Greg Coles, Wesley Hill, a woman named Eve Tushnet, uh, and their books landed on, oh yeah, so we chose celibacy. And I would read those books and go, yeah, I get it, I get it. And when they would land on celibacy, I'd throw the book across the room. You should see my bookshelf. It's a bunch of messed up spines. <laughs> because that can't be it. See, I was supposed to be 30 and married with two kids and a white fence and a dog named Spot. Like, that was the plan. Dr. Pereira and his beautiful wife and his children. In Mark 10, Jesus says to Peter, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time and in the life to come. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands, along with persecutions. We can ignore the persecution part. That part's terrible. But Jesus actually says, hey, hold on. What you give up for me, I give back to you a hundred times. And I always was like, oh yeah, in heaven. My crown's gonna be really great in heaven. That's cute. What's that gonna do with me? But Jesus said, no, 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 in this life, I'm actually telling you, in this life, whatever you lose, I will give back a hundred times, in this life. I don't know, I'd never heard that before. Just sitting right there in Mark 10 for us. Feels important for us to know. And so as I'm scared of celibacy, but like, okay, God, you're good, and you've got to call us to good, seeing this passage is God saying, I'm asking you to give up family. I'm asking you to give up kids. I'm asking you to give up the expectations of your Latino mom who like half her identity is in the thought of being a grandma one day. And now her only child is becoming celibate. But I'm promising you I'm gonna give back a hundred times as much. You will never lose more than I could give you. Your hands will be too full. So with just a bit of kicking and screaming and a few tears, I embrace celibacy. 
In the beginning of this process, I told the Lord, look, if I do this, I need you to be exactly who you say you are. I need you to be close. I need you to be kind. I need you to be loving. I need you to be my friend, and I need you to give me family. And as I've pursued celibacy, I've watched the Lord be good and kind and close and loving. I've watched him be my friend. And in the most baffling way, I've watched him give me family. I have a really full life. I say this because often we think single people are just going to like one day be happy when they're married. I have a really full life. In fact, sometimes life feels a little too full. I'm like, how do I even balance all this commitment and love? God has blessed me with people who've chosen to walk alongside me. I've had friends who give me keys to their homes. I have a best friend who, as I was discerning celibacy, he was reading Galatians 6. He's heterosexual. Um, he was reading Galatians 6, which says to bear one another's burdens. So he started asking God without me saying anything, well, how do I carry Art's burdens? If that's my brother, how do I carry his burdens? About a year or two into this process, as I'm grieving the loneliness of celibacy, he says, hey, God has asked me to invite you into my family. God has asked me to share life with you, even after I'm married, and we'll figure that out. So now he's dating a young woman. They're pursuing marriage, um, and we've had to have conversations. What does it look like for me to live next door? So that I can have family so that they can have support too. I didn't know that was an option. I didn't know God was going to do this. When we look at the New Testament, that shouldn't surprise us. When we look at the New Testament, we see a lot of people with burdens that the church gives up to carry with them. There's an invitation from God into goodness in all of our experiences, in all of our sacrifice. Jesus says, come and die to yourself, but come and die so that you might live in me. Jesus says, look, count the cost before you follow me. But he also says, know that whatever you give up, I'm going to give back a hundredfold. When we talk about sexuality, especially the LGBTQ community, we tend to end the conversation at come and die. We tend to end the conversation at come pick up your cross, crucify yourself. But the road of Jesus is a road of completion. He's saying there's more, that there's a hundredfold times as much as you would imagine for yourself. I've watched my singleness be a rich gift to myself, but I've also watched my singleness be a rich gift to my married friends, to my church, to my own family. I've gotten to walk alongside other couples and married folks in ways I never would have been able to if I was pursuing my own marriage. And I'm thankful that my life gets to be so full and so beautiful. Um, we're going to pause here and uh, offer you a little bit of a break to integrate and also to use the restroom. Um, and then we'll be doing Q&A when we get back in a few minutes. All right, uh, I'm gonna dive right in just so that we can honor everyone's time. And I know, I mean, it's still time, so we got time before lunch, but um, I don't need a hangry audience, so we're gonna avoid that at all costs. Um, all right, I'm going to start with this question because it comes up a lot, and I think it helps us have other conversations better. Um, Art, you use the term gay to describe yourself. Instead of a man who struggles with same-sex attraction, can you help us understand uh, why that's important to you? Um, a few things. I don't necessarily use it instead of. I'm comfortable with same-sex attracted or saying I struggle with same-sex attracted. Um, I don't find it helpful when we're caring for LGBTQ or same-sex attracted folks to dictate how they use language. Here's why. In my experience growing up in the church, um, the few times I did try to have conversations, I would be like, I think I might be gay. 
and a pastor would flinch and go, you think you might struggle with same-sex attraction. And suddenly, this conversation that took me months to like, take up the courage to was shut down because I don't even have words I know what they mean. Um, the term same-sex attracted is only used in two spaces, really. Predominantly in the conservative church. Okay? And I'm not saying that means we can't use it, but I'm just saying this is like one of the, I would say 90% of the times I see the word same-sex attraction, it's in this environment. The other environment is sometimes, I'm studying for a master's in clinical mental health, so that one day I can be a doctor, my parents can be proud of me. Um, but, like, sometimes that gets used for some studies because it uh, allows for some scientific explanation of, or like description of things for someone who, they might not identify as LGBTQ, but they do experience same-sex attraction. So, those are the only two environments. But again, mainly in the church. So, um, why do I use gay slash any other word? Um, first of all, because you don't really see same-sex attraction language outside of the church. Um, so missionally, it means nothing. Um, when a gay person visits your church, and let's, we're just going to talk about a gay person who doesn't know the Lord. When you talk about same-sex attraction, they're like putting those words together to be like, do they mean me? Um, not helpful. It's helpful if we speak the language of the people we serve. Um, so that's, I think, first of all, a part of it. Um, the other part of it is that for me, uh, my professor in college used to say that words give us handles and handles give us power. For me, when I was in the XD movement, you never say gay. You only ever say, well, I was gay, or you say, uh, I struggle with same-sex attraction. And the theory there is that by doing so, you won't identify with your sin. But what my experience has been, and honestly what psychology teaches us, is that anxiety about avoiding a certain topic actually makes that topic bigger in our heads and hearts. So avoidance of language makes us powerless against what we experience. Whereas for me, being able to be like, the word does not matter, what matters is, does God know what I'm saying? Does my friend know what I'm saying? That freedom gave me power over my attraction in a way that before I was like, I can't tell anyone. And, I, and if I say same-sex attracted, first of all, it's like super clumsy and long. But second of all, people might not even know what that is. Like, I can't tell you how many times I've been like, yeah, I'm same-sex attracted. And people are like, what's that? I'm like, well, I'm like a gay person. And they're like, oh, okay. And I'm like, but it's, instead of just being a gay person, I'm like, a gay person. You know? Um, so it like doesn't mean things to people. And then a conversation that's already really scary and sensitive and hard for me suddenly just got new challenges. Yeah. We don't need to add barriers on to the people in our churches who are suffering and need to live in community. Um, we need to take barriers away. I will say there are people with concerns about the word gay that you take up your identity too much in your sexuality. And I will say there's some validity to the fact that all of us can have idols as parts of our lives that we over-identify with. I met young men who were baseball players, and they were more baseball players than they were Christians. Um, I know Brazilians who are more Brazilian than they are Christians, all right? Like, I grew up in a Brazilian church, but I was like the kid who grew up in America, and sometimes I'd be like, this part of our church doesn't seem like scripture. And they'd be like, ah, but we're Brazilians, that's how we do it. And I'm like, that's scary. <laughs> um, I've heard of, I, I've never encountered this or seen it on the news, but I've heard of Americans take up Americanism. <laughs> uh, and sometimes equate it with Christianity. And that should alarm us, right? There is no identity that gets to compete with our identity as a Christ follower, as a child of God. Those things filter everything. Like this identity as God's beloved filters everything else out. But it is still helpful for us, for us humans, who live in a fallen world with a lot of different distinctions to have language to describe our experience. Um, I hope my Brazilianness never overrides my Christianity. 
But I'm also thankful I can explain to you that I'm Brazilian and suddenly you're like, oh yeah, I've met some Latinos. Um, he's going to be loud. He's going to be in my personal space. You know, he makes really good food. Um, it's helpful for us to have cultural identity labels. The, finally, the other thing I'll say here um, is that some of my siblings prefer same-sex attraction language. That's cool. I'm not here to dictate how people talk. We use language that helps us connect to God, confess well, and connect to community. Um, for some of us, gay language will do that, and partially because we've been through conversion therapy. And y'all, conversion therapy was traumatic for a lot of people. I got like the, the cute after effects that weren't that bad, okay? Um, I won't get into it because it was weird, but it was like not that bad. But if you were like 20 years older than me, your conversion therapy might have been electroshock. Your conversion therapy might have been, here's a picture of a shirtless man, and now we're going to induce vomiting. These are real things, and the way people landed in these chairs were by a pastor's recommendation. And those environments insisted on you using same-sex attracted language. If you're my 45-year-old sibling and you were electrocuted by someone saying same-sex attracted and you want to use gay, God bless. I'm not going to be the one telling you you can't because I don't need you to think I'm one of those people. Um, so it just really helps people navigate a lot of their hurt if we have freedom over conversation. What is most helpful? And what do you mean by that? Um, and just, by the way, uh, those, I'm 31. There's a generation gap with how we use language. I know this is more than the question asked, but this is important. Um, there's a generation gap. Uh, anyone about 20 years older than me tends to go, well, if you're gay, that automatically means you're having sex with a man. Like, that's how that word was used culturally, and frankly, the LGBTQ community embraced it as such in the 70s and 80s a lot. I find that most people I meet, I'm 30 and I'm younger, are totally like, oh yeah, you're gay, that's like this thing about you, it means nothing about what you actually do with your body. It's an experience you have. Um, so there's a generation thing here, and the reality is language changes with time. We're never going to stop that. Um, gay has only been used for, well, we'll get into that tomorrow at um, Sunday school. All right. Um, oh, we already have double the questions. All right, look at y'all. Um, did you ever feel discriminated by your church? How did you manage your emotions towards it? Um, we won't get too deep into this, but I'm coming off a year of really deep church pain. Um, as I've been more open with my story, I've experienced much worse treatment in the church. When I was like really selective about who I told, it was kind of okay. But I felt more and more called by the Lord to have this conversation. Y'all, the Lord called me to be a shepherd, okay? Um, and shepherds got to have all the conversations because otherwise the sheep get, get lost in the woods. And we don't get to be mad at the sheep for being lost when we, we won't talk about the things they're experiencing. So I talk about being attracted to men. Why? Because otherwise the sheep who are attracted to men don't get to navigate that well with somebody. Um, a lot of people are uncomfortable with that. Um, I've been... Yeah, criticized really harshly. Um, I have had to tell my mom, don't ever Google me. Um, there are, yeah, you know, and just churches where I get treated really differently. Um, when, I, like when I was looking for a church last year, uh, pretty hard, I usually send the pastor an email with three questions before I even visit a church because, honestly, the, the reactions can be so aggressive and strong right away. Um, visited a church once, and a woman asked, what do I do? Which, I do this for a living. Oh, we didn't do the care tips. We'll do the care tips. Um, I do this for a living. And so I'm like, oh, I work for a nonprofit. And I was trying to move on. She's like, what kind of nonprofit? I'm like, we help gay people follow Jesus and we help churches love gay people. And then suddenly it was, oh, it was game over. It was a really rough. I ended up not even staying for the service. Um, how do I manage my emotions towards that? Super nerdy. Um, if you know anything about the X-Men, like, this sounds silly, but it's one of the biggest ways the Lord has spoken to my heart. Um, I love comics and the X-Men they actually were made and written to um, 
represent the marginalized experience. Originally in the 70s, the racial marginalized experience in America, um, but in more recent years, they also reflect um, sexual um, marginalization. Um, and there, I always say there's two types of marginalized people. There's Magneto, who has been marginalized, so he's like, I'm gonna crush the world. We're gonna marginalize everyone else. Uh, and there's Professor X, who says, I've been marginalized, so I will spend my life building bridges and providing safety. Um, I literally have to wake up every day and be like, Jesus, help me be Professor X today. Um, help me build bridges and provide safety. It is really hard. Um, there are days that the bitterness grows in my heart. The Lord has loved me well. I mentioned my brother that I live with. Um, he's a straight white guy. And so to be loved really well by a straight white guy every day is an act of healing in my heart that keeps me from growing bitter. Um, I don't know that I would have been able to survive some of the marginalization I've experienced if not for that. Because I can't say all straight white men are the devil um, because I live with one who fights for me every single day. And so that is a reminder that the only church that exists is a church with all of us. And while they discriminate against me, I can't discriminate against them. Um, all right. Um, okay, there's a few questions about caring for folks, so I'm actually going to do my three care tips that I was supposed to do earlier, um, and we'll see how much that helps you. So um, this is just kind of like my, my everyday work, 50% of my job is providing pastoral care for LGBTQ folks. So I meet with LGBTQ people who are trying to figure out their faith. Um, I help them connect to community. I help them find um, safe churches. The other 50% of my church is helping pastors and churches and um, parents love the LGBTQ folks in their lives. Um, so these are some tips that I've found really helpful in the heterosexual friends of ours in loving LGBTQ folks well. These are practical things we can all do. And I'm gonna mention this now because then as we answer other questions, it'll come up. Um, so first, um, a very basic first thing we need to do when we engage LGBTQ folks is to believe in God's love and work in the LGBTQ community. Which sounds really simple, we're like, well, that's like a non-statement. But actually a lot of us don't believe that God loves and is at work and loves and LGBTQ people. And that's evidenced by our anxiety and the fact that we have to save them. We get like really like, if I don't do something, if I don't say something, this person's doomed, this person's gonna go to hell. And I know that's driven by love, but y'all, Jesus is Jesus. I don't have to be Jesus. The Holy Spirit's the Holy Spirit. I don't have to be the Holy Spirit. And so first, I invite you to believe in the love of God and the work of God in the lives of LGBTQ people. Believe that God loves them, believe that God pursues them, believe that God has not forgotten them, and believe that God will work in their hearts. And pray for them a lot. Um, secondly, we need to think about everything the Bible says to LGBTQ folks, not just the six clobber passages about LGBTQ folks. The whole gospel is for the gay community. Because the whole gospel is for this world that God loves. Um, and why do I mention that? Because growing up, we're like, well, what does the Bible say about gay people? Come tomorrow morning, you'll find out. Um, there are six passages, six passages, not four, um, that specifically address the experience of same-sex sex in scripture. And typically, that is all that comes up. If I Google as a, a little teenager, which I did, what does the Bible say about gay people? It's just those six passages. What we forget there is that when God says, for God so loved the world, he was talking about me still. And when Jesus says that the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, I have come that they may have life and life to the full, he was talking about me still. And so while we need to know the passages about same-sex sex and about marriage, about sexuality, we need to understand that the whole gospel still applies to all communities we encounter. 
Um, and that work is so, so, so important because I grew up just hearing like, the Bible says don't do this. If you do so, you're a sinner. The Bible also says that God is going to redeem and give us fullness. And so there's a lot more there that matters. Um, and finally, three postures that you can engage in as you engage people. Um, the first posture is dignity over judgment. Just assume the person you're talking to is the image of God because the Bible says they are. We don't get to choose that they're not. And now assume the way you treat this person reflects how you would treat the Lord because the Bible says it does. Um, I've met a lot of people who get really fearful with the LGBTQ community and say that they're our enemies. I'm gonna step in with you for a second and say, sure, the LGBTQ community are our enemies. The Bible says how do we treat our enemies? We love them. Um, let's assume for a second there are brothers and sisters or there are neighbors, which they are. What does the Bible say we do for those folks? We love them. They are the image of God and you are called to love them. Period. Um, and so, dignity over judgment. Just respect that this is a person God loves and was made in his image. And then ask yourself, what does that mean? And treat them accordingly. Um, secondly, engagement over assumption. Uh, I meet a lot of people who assume a lot about me the second I say anything about my life. Um, was in a conversation once where I told someone my story very similarly, in a one-on-one -on -one setting, very similarly to how I just did, pretty detailed, uh, mentioned that I was celibate at least six times, and they go, mm -hmm. so is Nick your boyfriend? Uh, Nick's the guy I love it. And I was like, what are, you, what are you talking about? And they're like, well, I just like, I'm wondering, you know, you guys are always together, he lives with you, I don't know, like, is your church okay with that? And first of all, like, what business is it yours? But second of all, I just told you like 20 times. <laughs> Clearly, you're not going to believe me. Um, we get stuck on things. And sometimes it's on words. And I get it. Like, y'all, there's culture stuff there. If in our culture the word gay means a certain thing, I know there's a hurdle when I use the word gay. I, I understand that. Um, but we have to jump over our assumptions about people and engage them. And so when I say I'm a celibate gay person, if to you gay means I'm having sex and celibate means I'm not, and then you're like, I don't, well, then just say to me, wait a minute, those things seem contrary, and then I can explain to myself, and then you can believe me, right? This is the only thing I ever ask of people, just believe me, what I say about myself. Um, you'll be surprised how often people don't believe us about ourselves. We have to constantly prove everything, and I'm at a point where I just, I won't prove it. Like, um, yeah, so, um, engagement over assumption, don't assume things about us, seek to understand. Um, if Jesus ate with Zacchaeus, you and I can eat together and we can get to know each other. Um, and finally, um, belief over scrutiny. Um, we don't need to kind of police everyone around us and scrutinize every little detail of our lives. We don't need to catch them in the act, which is sometimes what we want to do, right? We're like, we want to prove those people are wrong. Um, please let's believe God loves and is pursuing and is working in their lives. And I encourage you to talk to God a lot more about them than you talk to them about God. Um, if you believe God will work in your heart, then get on your knees every day and talk to God about that person. And when he wants you part of that work, he will show you. The Spirit is so good, right? Like he invites us into the work, but he shows us when. There's that critical moment where often we're able to partner with someone and God brings fruit. We often stop praying for someone, but we get up in their face every chance we can. Because we are going to rescue them. No, go get on your knees. Go talk to God about them. God will show you when it's your turn to talk. Um... There's a few questions about how are things with my dad and my family now. My dad, unfortunately, passed away 11 years ago um, before we were able to have another conversation. Um, we were able to have a better relationship 
after I became a Christian, um, there were still some things rough between us. My mom, um, she's the best. We're really close. I love my mom. Um, she and my stepdad are really loving. They're an active part of my life. They live 30 minutes away. We see each other all the time. It has been really hard to get my mom to understand celibacy. Um, there's a thing that happens with parents of LGBTQ kids. Uh, let's assume the parent starts from a conservative sexual ethic, okay? They, they, have, they start by believing gay marriage is not real, um, or not good, excuse me. That was my mom's posture. She was like, gay people should not get married, gay people can't have sex. Suddenly when I became celibate, she was like, well, wait a minute, I want you to be happy. What if you got married to a man? What about everything you've ever taught me about the Bible? <laughs> and she was like, yeah, but like, I want a grandkid. And I'm like, yeah, but what about everything you ever taught me about the Bible? And she's like, yeah, but I want to see you happy. And I'm like, yeah, what about everything you ever taught me about the Bible? I've seen this with so many parents. Um, I call it quick and um, cheap allyship. We jump to like, oh, yeah, well, if the only way to love this person is to believe they can do whatever they want, then I've got to love them. I, I want to love them, so I've got to believe they can do whatever they want. It is not loving to me to not call me to God's best for me. So that's been a hardship with me and my mom, is that sometimes she's like, wouldn't you be better if you just got married? And I'm like, mom, what are we doing here? What's happening? Um, my stepdad has always been affirming. He has a, uh, sorry, by affirming, I mean affirming of same-sex marriage, uh, which means he's probably from a more progressive Christian tradition, which would believe in um, same-sex marriage. Um, my stepdad has always been, so that's always also been a point of tension. He's super supportive of me. We like each other a lot. Uh, but sometimes he's like, so you know, get married. I'm like, okay, let's move on. Um, how would you recommend engaging in this space with Christians who are of an affirming denomination? It's really hard um, to sometimes navigate those theological differences. I encourage people to consider the fact that as a church, we kind of always have theological differences. I mean, that's kind of the whole point of Protestantism, um, is that we disagree with the church next door. And we disagree about things that really matter. Um, you know, we no longer, you know, fist fight people about whether or not they baptize babies. Uh, but in our history, we sure have, haven't we, as, a, as, a, as God's global church? So I do wonder if there's some ways to have theological difference with people, including about sex and marriage. Now, I will say that's hard for me um, to be as gracious in this area because I feel like scripture is a lot more clear about same-sex sex than it is about baptism, for instance. Um, and I think there's a morality to that, but there's not to baptism. But I think the question here is often, can we have theological disagreement while still loving someone? Um, I believe scripture says what gets us into the family of God is claiming Christ as Lord. And so if someone claims Christ as Lord but disagrees with me about the theology of marriage, I, I think probably they'll still be in heaven with me one day. I'm not going to be the one to say they won't. Um, and so I have to also recognize, okay, that's my sibling. My sibling who I think is very, very wrong. But if they claim Jesus, um, they pretend as Lord, I struggle to see how they're not my sibling. Um, so I think understanding that can be helpful. What does it look like to be single and part of your brothers and sisters' families? Um, Oh man, so many different things. You know, there's the most extreme side of that, like my brother Nick, who has said, man, we're gonna do this together. So we, we've like really like whittled down what does that look like for us. Um, we're always gonna live in the same town, um, ideally within a five minute walk of each other. Um, that sounds silly, like the, the levels of like what we figured out, but we kind of need to know, because as he pursues marriage, I wanna be able to support their marriage, but we also wanna support each other well as family. 
Um, the reason being in walking distance feels important to us is because those are the people you can really count on. Um, when you wake up in the morning and your car's dead, you're, you turn to your spouse and you're like, all right, I guess I'm taking your car today. Um, we want to be a family that does that for each other. And frankly, we see a lot of this in the New Testament. Um, if I look around at the American example of how we do things, or the modern example of how we do things, it's all like you and your wife and you break off and you live in isolation. We don't see that in the New Testament. In the New Testament and in the global church, we see a lot of deep communal living, um, a lot of people of faith living in one community, walking distance, supporting each other. Um, in the New Testament, if you were broke, I have to sell my house and give you money. That's how it works. That's how we do this. And so we try to be that sort of household for each other. Right now, we live together. Um, when he gets married, I will not live in the house with them. Our dream is to buy a duplex, but we live in New Jersey. Um, so probably um, we'll get a house and I'll live in a garage under a car. So um, <laughs> in other people, like we have two other chosen brothers. That's just, that just means we're going to be in life together. Um, they move across the country. We don't follow them, but we never don't know what's going on in their lives. We always show up when they're hurting. Um, and so that means, you know, one of my brother's uh, family just had a miscarriage this week. And so even though I was really busy and kind of overwhelmed, it meant showing up however we could. It meant bringing food. It meant being aware of the pain and carrying that grief with them. Um, for folks who are married and have kids, often I leverage the flexibility of singleness to show up. Um, most of my chosen family are in ministry. And in ministry, you give a lot of yourselves. And then you have two young kids, and you come home when you're tired, and you've got to you know, parent the kids. Um, and so it was things like whenever I lived near my brother Tommy, I was on weekly babysitting duty so he and his wife could go on a date. Um, and that was me supporting their marriage, right? That was me making sure they have a healthy marriage by making sure they have time away from the kids. Um, and also being a good chosen uncle to invest in these girls that love me and spend time with them. Um, and so being part of their lives. Also, um, being single, there's some financial flexibility my brothers don't have, and so I pray a lot about how I can carry that with them. Um, my brothers are all in ministry. Uh, so, you know, they're living that nonprofit life uh, financially. And so I have a savings account that I put money into for when all the kids right now are like under four, uh, but for when they're in college. And so I can be investing in what does it look like for them to pursue whatever it is they're going to pursue, helping them buy books, things like that. Um, that. Those are ways I carry that. For them, it means showing up when I'm lonely. It means making sure I have a place to spend holidays. Um, it means asking questions. They're all heterosexual. Asking questions about um, my experience so they can understand me as well as they can. Um, it means being slow to judge sometimes. Um, also, I think all committed relationship requires a lot of forgiveness. Um, if you want to know someone a year from now, you're going to have to forgive them in the next year. And that's just the reality. And so there's just forgiveness built in with us. Um, yeah. And I think a lot of living as family uh, that I encourage people to consider as a church is being flexible and not being as um, fearful of looking weak. I always say in the American church, we love a manicured lawn and a really messy house um, because people just drive by and they think, well, they have it all together. Um, but to show up at your house, I need a six-day invite so that you have six days to clean and, and make it look like you got it all together. Um, if you really walk, want to walk alongside someone, whether you're single or married, um, they have to be able to come over when your house is a mess. And I mean that literally. They have to be able to come over when your house is a mess. Because for you to be able to step in for them and for them to be able to step in for you, they're going to see your mess. That's the church. And so if I can't come over your house when there's like half-folded laundry on the table, then there's a million moments I'm going to need help and you're going to have to tell me not today. Um, but there's been times I've been like, man, I'm, I'm really struggling today. And one of my friends said, look, we got, like the girls are going through a lot. We're busy today. We're like, but if you want to come sit in our living room and cry while we fold laundry and talk to you, we can offer that. 
and so sometimes that's how we do life together. Um, sometimes I fold the laundry, you know? <laughs> um, I'm kind of bouncing around a little bit to see like kind of easier transitions. Okay, in church last Sunday, we talked about the gift of sex as such a shadow of the kind of intimacy the Trinity experiences um, in a relationship with one another. Do you agree with that? And if so, how do you wrestle with that dimension of your being not, uh, of not being something you get to enjoy? Um, yeah. Honestly, what's harder about celibacy, people always want to know, like, man, you're never going to have sex. And it's very rarely the sex that gets you. It's the loneliness. Um, Wesley Hill says in his book that it's not someone not knowing when you're playing land. That's what keeps you up at night. Um, and in my experience, that's been true. Um, not that there's not issues with the, the, the pursuit of sexual chastity, and there's like ways I need to be in integrity with that. Um, and there are moments of grief that I don't get to experience sexual intimacy and romance. Um, that does come up for me. Like wh when I go to a wedding, for instance, there's moments where I'm like, this is a beautiful thing they get. And it is sad that I don't get to experience that. Um, I do believe sex is a shadow of the beautiful intimacy of the Trinity. I think scripture shows that. I also believe that we're not gonna have sex when we get to heaven, like God has made that clear, um, and heaven will be like the angels. And so sex is temporary, and sex is not half as much as we make it out to be. Um, one of the things I talk about a lot is that we've kind of created this cultural idol of sex and romance. Um, a lot of times when I share my testimony like I just did, someone is like, hey, I'm, I'm really sorry you have to be celibate. Um, and what they mean is, oh, that sounds terrible, and I'm really sorry you don't have the, you don't get to experience all the good you get to experience. And I, I get that. That's really, there's compassion there because marriage really is uniquely beautiful and blessed by God. Like good marriage, especially when you're fighting to love Jesus and therefore you carry your spouse well, man, that's beautiful. Um, but we sometimes believe the Disney lie that marriage and romance is the peak of civilization and the peak of life. It's just not. Um, we don't see that in scripture. And if it was, then Jesus wasn't fully human. Because Jesus was single. Paul, I mean, so many like beautiful, faithful believers, our forefathers and foremothers were single um, and lived lives filled with love and the Lord and the church community. So I just don't believe that marriage is the peak of human existence. Um, I believe that the peak for us is to know God and to know his people. That's a full life. And I get to have that full life. Now, that's gonna be uniquely different for me. I'm gonna have some challenges you don't have, but also you're gonna have some challenges I don't have. I know people whose relationships with their kids are painful. And I'm like, Lord, you have spared me that pain. And I, that. And I, I, I say that's like, sometimes we talk about marriage as if it's only beautiful, but marriage is hard. Y'all, biblical marriage is hard. Yeah. And like, I have to wake up every day and die to Jesus. If you're married, you have to wake up every day and die to Jesus and die to your spouse. Otherwise, you're not obeying Jesus. So y'all have a challenge I don't have. Now, I have a challenge you don't have, right? Like, there's other unique challenges for me. But that's okay, because I also have blessings you don't. And you have blessings I don't. We need to recognize that God has blessed you if you're married with a beautiful life, and God has blessed me with a beautiful life. And it's work for both of us to pursue those things. Um, thank you, yeah. And I will say, um, for all of us, please let's pursue every bit of intimacy outside of sex we can. We sometimes go, romance, intimacy, sexual intimacy, that's all we got. It's why single people are on hookup apps, because we're lonely at 10 o'clock at night, and it is much easier to download an app than to have a real human conversation. Um, pursue intimacy. Pursue friendship intimacy. Have friends that you have honest conversations with over coffee once a week. Have friends that you give really long hugs to. Um, this is one of my like hills I die on, but um, psychologically, the 
like the uh, neurotransmitters that get released in your body when you hug someone for 10 seconds are very similar to the ones you get from sex. And guess what? Those neurotransmitters fight stress, anxiety, and depression. Which, guess what we all have after the pandemic is stress, anxiety, and depression. And so if we want people in our churches to be healthy um, and to have an ability to fight stress, anxiety, and depression, God has actually wired us to offer each other that gift through a long hug. If you're not a toucher, that's totally cool. I'm a Brazilian, so like, we're like, oh yeah, that's right, hugs are holy. Um, I guess it's wired in this. But it's just a reality. God has made us to provide each other relief from the pain of life. And when we don't do that in godly, ordained, intimate ways, we will seek that in unholy ways, that God is not blessed. But we need that relief. Um... Do you know people who have found community like you have long-term family style? Absolutely. Um, I know a lot of people in my community, specifically the Celtic gay community, who are pursuing life in different ways. Um, some people who choose to live in households of celibate folks who support each other. Um, some people who live with um, heterosexual families like I do. Um, other people who just intentionally live near their church and really deeply invest in their local church. Um, there's actually a lot of beautiful ways we can live in community. Um, how do you respond to gay pride and or political policies about same-sex marriage? Great question. I have tensions with gay pride. Um, I also have things I enjoy about the month of June. Um, let's do the tensions first. Uh, so tensions with gay pride. Um, modern gay pride is very sexual. Um, and I just don't think God blesses sex outside of marriage. So I don't know that I'm super into like street celebrations of sex. Um, in fact, I know I'm not for those things. Um, whether they're gay pride or whether it's Brazil's carnival, which is an over-sexualizing of heterosexual sex and an objectifying of women's bodies. Don't love that either. Not blessed by God. Um, as a Brazilian, I'm supposed to be pro-carnival. We have to carry our cross. Um, I will say there are things in the gay pride movement that was actually originally a fight for rights. Um, and uh, an example of rights that I have because of gay pride. So I have tension here, right? Like I want to just be like, Stop doing those sex things in our streets. Um, but the only reason I have housing protection in New Jersey is because people protested during Pride um, 20, 30 years ago. Specifically, the LGBTQ black community, um, their protests have led to me having rights. And uh, my black siblings in, in this experience of life, if not for them, I could be kicked out of any apartment I lived in as soon as the landlord found out I was same-sex attracted. So I owe them that. And I don't get to judge them um, all the time for what that looked like for them. Um, I need to be grateful that I have housing protection. Um, so I do think that there's a nuance there of like, uh, especially the fight for um, discrimination protections. I think it is beautiful and good that people shouldn't be afraid of losing their housing or their job because of something they have no control over. Um, and so in the ways in which those protests exist and fight for those things, I'm thankful for it and there's beauty in it. And the way in which it's become an oversex display of that part of life, um, gross. I don't want that. <laughs> I don't think it's good for people. Um, as far as the political policies, I think it's really important that we separate politics and real people's lives, and sometimes even politics and theology. I try to let my theology drive how I vote. I will be honest with you that I am theologically opposed to same-sex marriage, probably politically neutral to pro. And here's why I say that. Um, I don't always think that we are consistent about how we politicize our theology. There's a lot of things that are sins that we don't fight for them to be illegal. It's weird to me that we pick a few issues and we're like, that's 
sin has to be illegal. Um, also, marriage is tied to rights in America. For instance, during the AIDS epidemic, um, young men who had had a, or men who had had a partner for let's say 20 years, um, and they're dying in the hospital, we're not allowed to go see their partner as they died in the hospital. I don't think that's dignifying. I don't think that's loving. I think it's loving that people can be comforted even as they experience a terrible crisis. Um, and so marriage actually provides us with a lot of protections. Um, your spouse can't testify against you in a court of law. That's beautiful. I would like someone to not be able to testify against me in a court of law. Not that I'm committing any crimes yet, but you know, who knows? Um, but there's other protections that come with marriage and other ways of support. As a celibate person, scares me that there's no one guaranteed access to me. If my mom passed away, no one is guaranteed access to me in the hospital. And there's actually no easy way to give certain people in my life, my life the rights over what happens with me if I become unconscious. Marriage folk, married folks, we have that built in. And so I think until we have justice in those areas and those things aren't only tied to marriage, um, there's a lot of rights tied into marriage where it gets really complicated. I'm also not someone who thinks it's super helpful to dictate how non-Christians live their lives. Um, so again, theologically, don't believe God bless the same-sex marriage. Politically, I don't necessarily believe that every single thing I believe has to become a law. Um, and until there are equal access to other protections, I more believe that people need those protections. Um, ideally, we would have other medical and systemic protections that don't require marriage. Um, us celibate folks would really appreciate that. Um, Okay, how do you deal with the passage in 1 Corinthians about with such a man do not even eat, referring to a, mem a number of unrepentant sins, including sexual sin? How do we handle this with Christians who are in a same-sex marriage and don't feel convicted that this is a sin? Y'all, that is one of the hardest passages for me. Um, I do feel that tension every time I'm, I'm with a friend who is affirming. Um, I will say that one of the works that we have to do with that passage is to decide what was specific advice given by Paul to a, uh, to a group of people and what was law given to all people. Um, that comes up a lot when we see Paul talk about, well, women shouldn't speak in a church, but then Paul also has women ministry partners who are actively involved in his ministry. Um, we have to be really careful about what's being applied there culturally in a specific moment and what's the broader picture of what's happening. Um, with such a man, do not even eat, uh, referring to a number of unrepentant sins, including sexual sin, my other tension there is that Jesus sat with prostitutes. Um, the biggest tension for me here is if you claim Christ. If you don't claim Christ, I'm with you all day. There's like no tension. Like there's just, I, it, what you do with your life is not my problem um, if you don't claim Christ. The first thing between us is do you know that God loves you? And so my non-Christian LGBTQ friends, like, yeah, I, there's just none of this tension here. Jesus sat with prostitutes. Jesus ate with Zacchaeus. I agree. It's the people who claim Christ, I think the importance of differentiation there was to um, speak to the broader culture that this is not the way of God. I do think there's something there that that matters. Um, I don't think the only way to, con to um, speak to the broader culture that this is not the way of God is to just like never have interactions with those folks. Um, in fact, I work with a lot of parents who have LGBTQ kids, and some of those LGBTQ kids will pursue same-sex marriage. And those parents go, do I have to stop having dinner with my kids? Um, and I, no. And personally, no. Um, I don't believe so, unless the Lord specifically convicts you of that, and that just does not seem in the character of God. There's a lot of things we will hold in tension as we engage these conversations. Um, but I believe there are ways to make clear our beliefs and our doctrine 
without also cutting off people, especially from their families. Um, one of the ways this passage gets abused that we have to be sensitive to, the LGBTQ homeless rate is abnormally high, especially for teenagers. About 60% of homeless teens are LGBTQ. Um, and that's often kids from Christian families because you come out to your mom or dad, dad says, hey, no child of mine, now you're on the street. Um, I would like to say that that's an exaggeration, but we've, I probably get an email every couple months about someone who needs to find a safe house to spend the night, otherwise a teenager's gonna be on the street. And so um, we have to be really careful with our application of these things and just copy pasting them onto everything. There was some co cultural context happening there. There was also a heart that was more about what do we say to the broader community? Um, and in all things, I think we need to fight for people's safety. Um, do you feel nearly equally let down by the Christians that are affirming? Yeah, my life experience is pretty interesting because uh, I am both too conservative and too progressive for everyone in my life. Um, yeah, just, yeah, just no, one, no one agrees with us, no one likes us, and that's, that's cool. Um, I, some of the most difficult conversations I've had are with affirming folks. Um, I was once berated by, for 45 minutes by an affirming man who told me my life was not happy unless I had a partner. And I said, where do you see that in scripture? He was a Christian. Um, where do you see that in scripture? And he said, well, and then, you know, kind of talked around it uh, and just continued to tell me I was unhappy. And I was like, it's really wild for you to decide that I'm unhappy when here I am smiling. I'm unhappy right now with you, but that was not my state 44 minutes ago. So um, it, is, it is really hard actually. And uh, our country is becoming increasingly polarized. We see this with conversations about race. We see this with politics. Um, the sexuality conversation is really highly polarized. Um, and we have to put down that polarization, all of us, because it's the people who get impacted who get caught in the middle. Um, it's people like me who just lose everything while people on left and right go at it. Um, and so we have to be careful there. Um, how can we open up the topic of celibacy to teens in our oversexed culture? Um, one big thing we need to be consistent in when we talk about sexuality to anyone, but especially to teens, um, is consistency in applying biblical sexual commands. We'll talk about this a lot tomorrow, both in Sunday school and in um, the sermon. But um, it is really difficult when those of us who grew up in the church feel like everyone really focuses on our sexual sin, and then you're kind of looking around like, I mean, I don't know y'all, but y'all are sinful. Um, I've never been heterosexual, but um, from what I see, heterosexual folks sin at the same rates as we do, um, sexually and otherwise. And so calling all people to sexual integrity is really important. That's the first thing. Like, if we're going to talk about celibacy, if we're, we need to talk about all people needing to pursue sexual integrity. Um, I, I'll talk about this tomorrow, but I always say that God has called all of us to chastity and community. Um, if you're heterosexual in marriage, guess what? Um, God has called you to chastity. He has given you sexual boundaries, and you're to live within those sexual boundaries. And there is sacrifice there for you, and it's not always easy. I mean, y'all, divorce rates often occur because people cheat on their spouses. Um, because folks in marriages have porn problems and they won't let go of them, um, things like that. There are sexual boundaries for all of us that we have to honor to live in chastity. And we still are called to live in community, even as we're married. Um, and so I think that's a big part of it is can we call people to what is common between us? And that's our need for chastity and community. Um, our need to pursue a sort of sexual health and a sexual integrity um, also, and well, this is like the whole point of my sermon tomorrow, but 
But can we talk about how what God calls us to is good for us? Yeah. Like, God does not draw sexual boundaries because he doesn't think it's fun for you to have fun. God's not petty like that. What joy would God get from mobbing you of fun? Um, God is a protective father. Those of you who are parents, you know your kids sometimes want things that aren't good for them. Um, I was, I have only learned recently in life that I was apparently a backpack leash child. Uh, <laughs> meaning when we were in public, I was on a leash, which sounds like a disaster, but honestly, if you knew me, I should maybe be on a leash now. <laughs> I, I, I drop things, I break things, I, I walk into the street, I, am, I have ADHD and it's pretty rampant. And um, it was protective of my parents to put some boundaries on me so I didn't run off into the street. And a loving God will sometimes put some boundaries on us so we don't run off into the street. Um, we need to teach teenagers that obedience happens because we're pursuing good, not because we're running away from bad. Um, also, I would encourage you, I don't call teenagers to celibacy. Um, I call teenagers to chastity. What's the difference? Celibacy is a commitment to singleness. Um, I'm not going to ask a 16-year-old to commit to getting married tomorrow. I'm certainly not asking a 16-year-old to be single for the rest of their lives. They're not ready to make that commitment. Teenagers are not ready to decide what they will do with their bodies for the rest of their lives. Good news, Jesus doesn't call them to. He says, do not worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will have the worries of its own. Will you be faithful today? So when I had gay teenagers in my youth ministries, I would sit down with them and they would talk. I'd say, well, have you prayed about this? If not, that's the first step. You've got to go pray about this. What God says about your life and about your sexuality matters. Go seek that. Then, once you've figured out what God says, now, can we obey him today? It's just about obeying him today. I don't care as a teenager what you're going to do in a week. Um, frankly, you're a teenager. You don't know what you're going to do in a week. And you can tell me right now, and then you're going to go against it because you told me. You're going to be like, you know what? Forget that guy. Um, it just, it's each day waking up and saying, Jesus, how do I honor you today? That's the work for our teenagers. It's also the work for all of us in a way that's sustainable, but especially for teenagers. We do not ask teenagers to commit to a life of celibacy. They're not ready to make permanent decisions. That's too overwhelming. That'll shut them down. We ask them to commit to seeking Jesus and what he wants each day. Each day will you wake up and ask God, what do you want from me today? What do you want from me sexually? What do you want from me financially? What do you want from me in my school? And to pursue that at every moment. That is much more manageable to them. It is much more hopeful for them. Um, how do you, by the Holy Spirit, persuade LGBTQ people that celibacy in Christ is more psychologically healthy than pursuing their desired lifestyle? Or is that not what you've seen? Um, again, I typically don't try to convince people of anything, um, specifically if they're not non-Christians. Um, Christians, I do have other conversations. But most Christians I know who are gay have really done the work. Um, and if they disagree with me, there's a few reasons people disagree with me or land in their affirming ethic. The first is that they were really committed to celibacy like me, and they just found no support. Um, this is like one of the number one reasons people transition from my sexual ethic into an affirming sexual ethic. In my experience, most of those people did not have an understanding of scripture that shifted theologically. It just was not livable because the church was too busy judging them to support them. Um, Y'all, my life and my lifestyle is only possible because people have loved me and walked with me. I don't know what it would be like to pursue chastity and celibacy if I didn't have friends who were sharing a lot of life with me, who knew me, who were pursuing expressions of intimacy with me, like giving me a big hug. I mean, if not for that, I don't know that I could do this. It would be so, so hard, and I would be leaning on the Holy Spirit so hard every day, and I hope I would make it. 
But the good news is Jesus didn't call me to chastity outside of community. He commands my community to bear my burdens even as he commands me to pick up my cross. And so when we don't do the work to support the people around us, their lives become unlivable. Um, that's one of the number one reasons I've seen people from my posture become affirming. It's because the church wasn't helping them. They were still getting driven out of churches. They were still being removed from leadership the second they talked about their experience. Um, so that's a really big one. That's really important to me. Um, another thing, I think in this conversation we have to constantly challenge the sexual and romantic idolatry that I mentioned earlier. That's my biggest problem with the affirming community is they don't actually address the fact that like the affirming community just makes all the same romantic and sexual idolatry everyone else does. They're like, and this is half the time someone tells me I should be affirming, this is their, this is their argument. Well, God loves you. And when we love people, we want, them, we want good for them, we want them to be happy. Your life couldn't possibly be good and happy without a sexual or romantic partner. And that logic makes sense to them. Why? Because of romantic idolatry. And this is from heterosexual and homosexual folks in my life. It's idolatry my mom buys into when she's like, but you, you could have a partner. Um, because what my mom wants is her kid to be happy. And she has, she's trying so hard to believe I can be happy without a partner. But it goes against, I mean, y'all, Brazilians, are, we are romantic so that's a little, there's a little more family pressure there. It's hard. And so one of the best things we can do is actually combat that lie and actually support um, ways of living in community. Um, like spiritual siblinghood that the New Testament honors and celebrates and thinks is beautiful. Um, if there are not people from your spiritual community who are like your family, I dare say you're not actually living out spiritual community well. If there are not people who lean on your finances when theirs runs out, I dare say you're not living spiritual community well. Like, New Testament spiritual family is family. One of Jesus' last acts, he's on the cross, and um, John and uh, his mother are like, at his feet, and he says, woman, here is your son, son, here is your mother. He gives his best friend to his mom as family. He says, care for each other while I'm gone. It's one of the last things Jesus does. It's a firm beauty of spiritual family. Um, when we can fight for spiritual family, we can challenge our affirming friends that they're, what they're doing is holding on to the idolatry. And frankly, I've never met an affirming person who addresses this well. Um, I've never seen them let go of that idolatry. So I think that's, a, that's really core to this conversation, um, is exploring other ways that that's true and good. Uh, I think we're, I'm gonna just flip through these really quick if y'all give me a second. Um, please do me a favor and if you have any more questions, submit them now because I need to start flipping through these again one more time. Um, one, I know I can answer, what advice would you give to believers who are bisexual, so meaning attracted to both genders? Um, again, God invites all of us to follow him in chastity and community, and he gives some boundaries around what sex looks like. Uh, and so in my experience, most of my bisexual friends end up in heterosexual marriages um, because it is a way of pursuing intimacy that God has blessed and that God has left open for them. For all of us, we have to discern, can I live in a faithful heterosexual marriage, or can I live a faithful life as a single person? I found that heterosexual marriage was just not possible for me, and so a faithful life as a single person is my other option. Um, and again, in deep community, this is not, do I live with someone or do I live alone? That's not our two options. We have to end that thinking. So bisexual folks, some of my bisexual friends have found that heterosexual marriage um, is good and possible and a good option for them. Some have found that no, they would rather be celibate. Um, there's enough confusion there, there's enough tension there that they don't relate well to that experience of heterosexual marriage. Um, and so I encourage them 
those same two options. Okay, well then how do we find a really good single life for you? Um, and we have to insist on really good single lives for ourselves. If you're a single person, one of the first things we can do is insist that God has intimacy for us because he does. And we can insist that our friendships reflect that intimacy. And so we can seek that. Um, we can encourage our churches to care for us well and to walk with us well. We can encourage our friends to show up for us. When our married friends forget about us a little bit after they get married, we can hold them accountable to that. Now, I say that with like a lot of grace, right? My friends just had a baby. Usually I see them three times a week. Do y'all think I'm seeing them three times a week right now? Nuh-uh. I am showing up at their house twice a week with food, saying hello through the door, and leaving. Because that's the best way to love them. They're my people. i got to fight for them. I don't get to be mad. Like, I, I was lonely this week. Yeah, I was lonely this week. I miss my buddies. But I don't get to be mad at them for that. I have to fight for their vocation as they fight for mine. But if in three months they're still like, ah, you know, we, they haven't had time, then I can say, guys, hey, I know you care about me. I really need you to show up a little bit. We need to find some way to make room. Um, so insist on that for yourself. Um, what books should single believers read? If we're talking about singleness, um, in general, I would read books about community. Uh, I know there are good ones that exist, but I can't think of them right now. Um, <laughs> what I'm reading right now that is not a, it's not a Christian perspective. In fact, I think the author might be a Buddhist, but she's got a PhD in psychology. Um, her parents are proud of her. Um, <laughs> but uh, she's got a PhD in psychology. She's writing a book called Platonic. And it's um, a psychological perspective of pursuing healthy intimacy as a single person. So far, it's been fantastic. There will obviously be things she discusses that the Lord does not bless um, because she's not a Christian. But if you're talking from a mental health perspective, um, a lot of single friends have not explored like how to live not depressing lives as single people. It's been really good. She even gives tips for like how do you actually make healthy friendships. Um, so it's called Platonic, and frankly, I think most of what psychology teaches us about how we connect with people um, kind of backs up the Bible because it's almost as if someone who knows us made us. Uh, and now as we study the human brain and how it's made, we're like, oh, here's what's good for people. And then I'm like, yeah, you know, Proverbs 17, 17 says that, but cool, we can do it because of psychology. Um, so as I study psychology, the more I see is that intelligent God made us and made us to meet each other well. And so usually psychological study of intimacy pursue it unbiasedly will lead us to the God that made us and will lead us to God's design for our relationships. Um, so really encourage that. Um, I'll see if I can think about other books on singleness. Um, thoughts on how to best love on friends who are gay and in committed, married, or long-term relationships. Um, again, discerning what for you constitutes uh, approval. Um, some people will go to a gay marriage. Some people won't. Um, I used to think Again, I look at Jesus, and he hangs out with prostitutes, y'all. Um, so I really struggle to not show up for my gay friends if they get married. Um, that's just, for me, like, I think it's what Jesus would have done, honestly. While also, like, disagreeing with it. Um, but Jesus hanging out with prostitutes wasn't affirming prostitution. He was just still spending time with someone he loved and insisting on being present in their life. Now, I have heard a few people quote that other passage on do not even eat with such as these, and naming that as their tension. So I do believe there are probably scripturally honoring ways to do both. And you have to discern for yourself what communicates approval. But I invite you to not make yourself their moral police. That's the number one thing I think we can do to love people well. We don't have to be on top of them like, are you still living with that man? Um, I had a woman once ask me, I just reconnected with a friend and it turns out her daughter's a lesbian. What do I do? And I didn't even know how to answer that question. And I asked her, can I ask, what would you do if you found out her daughter was living with a man. She's like, well, I wouldn't say anything. Why would I say anything about that? I said, okay. 
seems like maybe just don't say anything. Um, you know, there's just there's just nothing for you to say there. You know, that's that's kind of her experience, and that's her to carry and figure out. Um, and so I think if we would relieve ourselves of the pressure to be everyone's police and genuinely seek God, like, y'all, I believe the Holy Spirit wants good, and that includes conviction. So seek the Holy Spirit's work in their life. Pray for them every day. And if there's a moment God wants you to speak, he will show you, um, and he will empower you. Um, one more complicated question. I have a much harder time with transgenderism because I feel like it's gender appropriation at time and minimizes both men and women, respectively, to social constructs, etc. How do you interact with the transgender community ideology? This is a hard question. Um, I am not transgender in any way, shape, or form, um, and so I try not to speak to that community's experience just because I often... I have rarely been helped by a straight friend saying, this is what the gays need, um, even when they mean well. Because often I'm like, gee, you didn't quite get it. You were maybe within a few miles, but you didn't quite get it. And so um, I often try not to speak to the experience of gender dysphoria or the transgender community, because I don't, I don't get that. Um, sure, I'm gay, but I've never looked in the mirror and not been like, oh, I'm a dude. Um, I will say that I know there's a lot of political politicizing of the trans community right now. And I know that even just me saying this word already, we're like ready to fight me more than we were five minutes ago. Um, I want to invite us to consider that these are people who God loves. And wherever we decide theologically about their experience, whether we decide that they're like, they're like no, you're, you're, you know, you're born a man, so you're a man, and that's, that everything else is sin, or whether we're like, oh yeah, sure, everyone can, you can transition, you can transition at the age of 12, wherever on that spectrum, the first thing we need to do is step back and ask ourselves, do I love this person like God loves them? Um, there's a lot of anxiety around this community, so please step back for a second. And the first question is, who is God to them? Does God pursue them? Does God love them? I do have a few trans friends um, who are Christians. They have different convictions about how they live their lives. Um, one of my better friends experiences gender dysphoria. By the way, gender dysphoria is the feeling of distress when your perception of gender does not match up with your biological body. Okay, so this is, um, she, was, she was born female, and she would say that from a young age, she would look at herself like, but I'm not a woman. And that caused great distress. Um, the suicide rates for this community are extremely high. Um, the, yeah, all the mental health statistics are really unfortunate. Um, and there's a lot of pain on both sides. Um, she has felt called by God to still live as her gender assigned at birth and still use she, her pronouns, even though there is pain there for her. Um, and nothing she does, and no matter the amount of, of years she's pursued Jesus and the faithfulness she experiences, has alleviated the distress she feels when she looks at her female body. Um, that grieves me deeply. I don't even know what to do with that. I don't know what to do with the fact that if I use a she, her pronoun for her, it might increase her risk of suicide. Um, I, I don't know. And so I just encourage you to, the first thing we can do to engage this conversation well is to put down our anxiety. And when we hear other people talking really flippantly, can we just stop absorbing that? Because there's a lot of, we're absorbing a lot. I have a friend who I love and she was like, oh my gosh, this man decided he's a woman now. He's ruined his family. And the first thing I asked her is, do you really think he wanted to ruin his family? Do you think that was easy for him? What would drive someone to make a change that they knew would devastate their family? Again, I'm not saying I agree with the actions, but there is something about this individual's experience that we do not understand. Because if I'm married and I have kids, 
and I've spent my life investing in them and loving them, to make a decision that I know will blow up that whole thing would be the most devastating thing. What is so hard about their life that that was the choice they felt they had to make? There's something for us to understand there. Um, I don't feel comfortable speaking past that because I'm not trans. Um, we know several gay people who have married heterosexually. I think it's gonna be my last question or two. They are honest, Sasha, not trying to be something they aren't. What are your thoughts on making that decision? Um, some of my best friends are gay men who are married to women. Um, my issue with the ex-gay movement is that we decided every gay person needs a heterosexual spouse. It'll fix them. Um, God calls us to chastity and community. His sexual boundaries allow for heterosexual marriage or beautiful singleness. Those are the options. There are some gay folks, men or women, who do not experience attraction to the opposite gender and do experience attraction to the same gender who will find themselves in a heterosexual marriage. Either because they didn't realize they were gay until it was too late, they were already married, and now they don't believe in divorce, and so they're committed, or because they still feel called to a marriage. Um, one of my best friends, uh, he's a gay man. Um, he speaks at our conference. He's a really great guy, loves the Lord, uh, worked in ministry, he's a therapist. Um, he married his wife when he was in his lower 20s, and at the time he would have said he struggled with same-sex attraction. He wouldn't have called himself gay. Now he would call himself gay. Um, and he shared with her, and he said, listen, I, I still really feel called to share life with you. I really love being in a relationship with you. Um, he might not experience sexual attraction to her, but he experiences a lot of intimacy and connection to her, and they wanted to have a family together. So they did, and they do. Um, they have a beautiful marriage. Um, they are deeply supportive of each other. There are unique challenges to their marriage, sure. Um, but I don't know an easy marriage. Um, if you have an easy marriage, please let me know. Uh, I have a lot of friends who'd like to meet you. Um, <laughs> But I don't know any easy marriages. I know marriages who fight really hard to love Jesus and love each other. Um, and so they fight really hard to love Jesus and love each other. So I do think it's a faithful way to live for people who are able to make that work. I encourage us not to push someone down that path because you do not know what that marriage will be like in 10 years. So if someone feels called by God to it, gets into that marriage, and then in 10 years it falls apart, that's one thing. If we say this is how they will be accepted in the church community, and then they pursue that, and then they cheat on their spouse, and then those kids grow up hating the church because the church, like, that's on us. Um, so I do not encourage people to pursue this. I do invite all my friends who are LGBTQ or same-sex attracted, and they're trying to figure out how to live, say, like, that's a, that's a beautiful way to live. It's one of the options for us. Do you think that could work for you? And some of my friends say, yeah, I think that could work for me. And others like me go, mm, no. <laughs> so, okay, so then we can pursue celibacy. Um, so I do think it's a, there's a, it's a valid way to live if we're gonna talk about it from validity. I also think it requires honesty the, the marriages that work are very honest and are honest before they get married. Um, or they're honest as they, like, there are marriages where they didn't realize until six years into the marriage. Um, it tends to happen more for women, I will say. Women who are same-sex attracted often don't realize until a few years into their marriage. Um, because in the church, we don't really talk about women experiencing attraction. Um, we talk about it as if guys experience attraction and women are just kind of like along for the ride and have to be careful to guard against men's attraction. Um, we very rarely teach women to navigate their own experiences of attraction. So I know a lot of women who are LGBTQ or same-sex attracted and are married to men and didn't realize until six or seven years in. Um, and, you know, then there's some hard conversations to have. I know some men who are really insecure because their wives are a little more attracted to women than they are to them. And that's really hard for them. And so they have to carry that really well. One of the things we can do, again, we live in community, those marriages need support. Um, we can give them places to process that. I try to walk really closely with those marriages in my church. Uh, I'm in a church of about 80 people, 
and two of us are openly LGBTQ, and I know of six young women in, uh, in marriages where they didn't realize they were same-sex attracted until years into their marriage. And so I try to walk really close with those couples um, because the guys are often freaking out. Like, what if my wife decides she doesn't like me uh, and I need to help them navigate that? And uh, the women are often like, they've got big questions. Um, I think that is it. Um, other questions are, well, how do you explain your wedding ring to others? Oh, um, I wear this because after I get a fresh haircut, it keeps people from hitting on me, so that works. <laughs> um, that's, that's one of the explanations, and you think it's a joke, but when you work in ministry and you're single, y'all, everyone's like, so I know a young woman. Um, I would have women in my church be like, we went to this great coffee shop yesterday, and there was a girl, and you should totally date her. And I'm like, she served you good coffee, and now I should marry her? The bar is so low. Um, so when you're in ministry, people will not try setting you up. I started wearing a ring, people left me alone. It was awesome. Um, but the other thing is just, um, if you see my ring closely, it's a tree branch. Um, I really believe I've wed my life, uh, my, my life to life. Um, Jesus brings life. Jesus plants and sows and brings fruit. Um, I'm committed in pursuing a life that is fruitful. And so I wear a tree branch ring. Um, but mostly it is because people stop trying to set me up. Um, yeah, I think I'm going to end it there because the other ones get really um, specific, and we've been going for two hours. Um, Y'all, it was a joy. Um, if you want any more further resourcing, let me give you some um, things you can do. If you are LGBTQ or same-sex attracted, um, what time today at the church office? Two. Two o'clock at the church office. Um, I'll be there. We can talk. Um, would love to help you figure out any resources. Um, tomorrow, Sunday school, we're going to talk about the theology of sexuality. So if you're like, you didn't get into the Bible enough for me, we will do that in Sunday school. Um, in the sermon, I'm going to be talking about why we bother with biblical obedience um, and talk about a beautiful vision of sexual obedience for all of us. So if you're like, well, why do we even care what God says about sex? Um, I'll talk about that in the sermon. Um, if you are a parent of an LGBTQ person looking for support, you can email me. Um, my job is to resource people. So if you're like, oh my gosh, my kid is LGBTQ, I don't know what to do. Um, it's literally my job to walk alongside you. There is no fee for that. Um, we just walk with people and I'm support raised so that I can just support you, which is really beautiful. So please email me. My email is art at revoice.org. We could have put that on there, so that's my bad. Um, we'll find a way to get, I mean, but it's just art at revoice.org. Um, so please email me if you need support or connections, um, or if you're looking for someone else who needs some support navigating things. Again, my full-time job is supporting families as they love LGBTQ folks or supporting LGBTQ folks as they love Jesus. So email me. I'd love to get you set up. Um, but yeah, it's been a pleasure. Mind if I pray for you guys real quick? Is that okay, Richard? Am I stepping on your toes? No. Okay. Um, sweet Jesus, it is good and beautiful to belong to your church. And today we get to represent your whole church, um, not chopping off any feet because they're not in here. We get to be together talking to you and seeking our Lord and learning how to love one another. So Lord, I pray that you would help us to love your body in all its forms. Help us to honor one another. Um, for our non-Christian friends, Lord, I pray that we would still see your image in them and that you would call out through your spirit the work of your goodness and your image in them. Pray that you would help us to love in such a way that it baffles people, that you would help us to love across discrimination. I pray that you would help us to love across hurt and confusion, that it would point to the deep and wonderful and overwhelming love of our Father. Um, pray for families um, to be restored. There are families here that have lost connection because of this topic. Lord, would you heal and bring together? 
And I pray for this church that they would continue to love well, that we can disciple people into your image and your likeness. In your name, amen.